Good morning, everyone. Welcome. Happy Father's Day to all of our dads, both here. We welcome all who are here in our gymnasium. Uh, it looks a lot different than it did just 24 hour, or 48 hours ago, at least. We had our rummage sale, uh, very successful, helping our youth program here at St. Paul's. And uh, welcome to all who are listening to us on KFUO 850 AM in the greater St. Louis area. And to all who are listening online, also KFUO.org. We welcome all of you to an in-depth study of the Gospel of Luke. And we are still in Luke 1. It's the fourth week and we're still in Luke 1. I think we're going to get out of Luke 1 today. That's, that's my, uh, that's my uh, real strong uh, desire and feeling. We're going to get out of Luke 1 today. And uh, anyway, though, some, some really good stuff to dig into. Let's begin with a word of prayer, if we could. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit, amen. Lord God, Heavenly Father, we come before you with thanksgiving for your greatest gift to us and to all people, that of your precious Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. We thank you for his life and death and resurrection once again. We thank you that he has paid the price for all sin and all evil, and we thank you for working life-saving faith in us through the, your Holy Spirit, working through your means of grace. Be with us today, and may that same Holy Spirit attend us and attend our study of your word, that we might continue to grow in our knowledge and understanding of that word. And we ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. All right. Uh, for those who are here in the gymnasium, there are Bibles in the back on a cart there. Uh, there is no handout. We just uh, use the Bible here and go through. Or, of course, if you have your own Bible, that's great. As I mentioned, we are in Luke chapter 1. And last time we left off around verse 49, I believe it was. And we are, of course, in the section that is called the Magnificat. This is Mary's song of praise. And it is, as I mentioned last week, one of four canticles that we have in this section of Luke 1 and Luke 2. Uh, there's the uh, Zechariah's canticle, which we'll be uh, getting to today, in addition to the Magnificat. And there's immediately following the, the birth of Jesus, we have the angels who proclaim in, in 2 verse 14, glory to God in the highest and on earth, uh, peace among those with whom he is pleased. And then, of course, we have the song of Simeon, the Nunc Dimittis, uh, Lord, now let your servant depart in peace. So there's actually four of these canticles, which we uh, believe would have been sung uh, as they were uh, spoken or uh, intoned, I guess you would say. Uh, they, were, they were meant to be sung. And we follow that same tradition even in our worship services today uh, as we utilize these canticles in our worship as well. Um, let's go to verse 49. I think we'll just get a running start. We'll start there and, uh, and move ahead. Uh, 49 here, uh, Mary is, is saying that he who is mighty has done great things. And the translation of the ESV, I think I mentioned this last week, is done great things for me is what the what translation of the ESV. But I think better translated is done great things to me. In other words, Mary here is not... Is not uh, doing a song of praise about herself and how the Lord has blessed her personally, but she knows that through her, the way the Lord has blessed to me is going to be a great blessing for so many as well. So probably better to translate that to me. And the he who is mighty now is going to be the subject of all these next verses going down as we click down these now. Um, verse 50, mercy, God's mercy is shown. And remember, mercy, I like to distinguish between mercy and grace. Mercy is not getting what you deserve. <laughs> In other words, if I'm going down I-270 on the way home and I'm doing 85 miles an hour and I get pulled over, what do I deserve? Ticket, right? At least a ticket, probably, if I'm going that fast. And the police officer may choose to have mercy on me. See, I'm not getting the punishment that I deserve, right? I think we'd agree. And grace, on the other hand, is getting what I don't deserve. In other words, I'm getting something good that I don't deserve by the grace of God, his undeserved, unmerited love for me and for all people, right? 
through his son, Jesus Christ. And so you've got verse 50 there showing mercy on us, those who fear him. Notice there, from generation to generation. Now let's talk about fearing the Lord just for a moment. Mary says here, showing mercy for those who fear him. That's the him is this, the mighty one who has done great things for me from generation to generation. In what sense do we fear the Lord? Do we, do we fear the Lord today? I hope so, yes. Absolutely. Now, let's talk about in what sense we fear the Lord. Do we fear the Lord in the sense that we are afraid he is going to punish and condemn us for eternity? Is that the way we fear him today? No. Not in Christ, right? Not in Christ. Apart from Christ, yes, we better, we better be afraid of that. We fear him, though. It is sometimes uh, thought of as a reverence. Uh, respect is maybe too weak a word for this, but a reverence. It's sort of the way you know, Luther says in his explanation of the first commandment, remember, we should fear, love, and trust in God above all things, right? His explanation of the first commandment. So there is that reverent respect for who God is and what he is. As com- yes, yes, the comment was made as compared to how insignificant and uh, uh, unpowerful, unimpressive, I guess you'd say, uh, we are, right? And I, I, I kind of compared a little bit as you're growing up when you're a young child, you have that reverent, I hope, reverent fear for your parents, right? For mom and dad. And um, not that you're, you're afraid that they are going to harm you or do something terrible to you, but you have that respect, that, that reverent fear for them. And that's those who fear him are those, again, who have that reverent uh, faith and trust in God as our Father, right? Luther says that, you know, explaining the Our Father, that we go to him just as we would to our earthly father and ask for uh, his blessings, okay? Now let me ask you, this is just an opinion question, so don't, there's no necessarily right or wrong answer, but your opinion. Do you think the fear of the Lord is something that is prevalent in our society or not so much? All right, I think, I think we've got a consensus here. I'm looking around at all the, all the head shaking in a negative way. Um, you know, again, this is just opinion, but, you know, I think of today, and I think most of us can do the same thing. Uh, think of today and the way things are in the world around us compared to when we were growing up, right? When we were, when we were young children. And the, the difference we see in attitudes, in culture, in any kind of respect for God, you know, there's, and there, there have always been, I don't want to paint it too broad a brush, there have always been people who have had no, seemingly, no fear of God, no fear of standing before the Almighty God, you know, on the last day. And so that has always been, but it just seems as though our society and our culture in particular keep going further and further away from any kind of a, a reverent fear for God. Yes, the op- that's a great point. The opposite uh, of this reverent fear of God and faith and trust in God would, of course, be unbelief. Would be unbelief. And um, that, again, we see, if you believe the statistics, we see that number of people who even claim to be a Christian today. That's the ones who, you know, actually will say, yes, I am when asked, just continues to to slide in generation. I wanted to get to this next part, too, generation to generation. There's the, you know, we just finished a capital campaign here at St. Paul's titled Tell the Next Generation, right? And we believe that's one of our, our biggest responsibilities is passing that faith and the content of that faith, the knowledge of that faith to the next generation who pass it to their generation and so on. And that's how it works so much of the time. You do have exceptions, of course, where parents might not have been Christians, and through some other means, God reaches out to a child. And we've even seen it here at St. Paul's, where the child 
is the one who's responsible for bringing the parents <laughs> to, uh, to a knowledge and, and a faith uh, in Jesus Christ. Uh, that, that does happen, but usually it's the passing along from generation to generation of that faith. And that's even what Mary uh, has here. Okay? Uh, now going on, this kind of interesting, there are six verbs. If we go from verses 51 through 55, there are six verbs there, and they are all in a past tense. Now that means that God not only has done these things, but it's also a prediction that he is going to do these things uh, still. And we call this the prophetic past. In other words, even though it is a prophecy about the future, it is worded in the past tense because when God says he's going to do something, it's as good as done, right? And that's called a prophetic past. We, we, you probably know, that, for example, in Isaiah 53, Talking about Jesus, the suffering servant to come, Isaiah prophesies he was wounded for our transgressions, he was bruised for our iniquities, upon him was the chastisement that makes us whole. Hasn't happened yet, right? It's going to happen in about seven, more than 700 years after Isaiah predicts it, or God predicts it through Isaiah. But again, it's in the past tense because, again, it is as good as done when God predicts it. And that's the same way we can take these verbs that are in here. So 51, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And then going to 52, he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Remember we talked uh, last week about the great reversals that happen. Uh, this is one of the characteristics of Luke. The, the, the poor uh, are lifted up, the poor and the hungry, the hungry are fed, the high and the mighty are brought low, okay? Um, in the Old Testament, uh, looking at verse 52 in particular, uh, he brought down the mighty from their thrones. Can you think of, in the Old Testament, any examples of God bringing down the mighty who were on their thrones at all? Okay, the Israelites going into captivity, and unfortunately, they, um, uh, into Babylon is the one I'm thinking, thinking of, yeah, and that's a result of their own idolatry and their own thinking, you know, nothing bad can happen to us, we're the chosen people, and thinking that was a license to, for idolatry. Nebuchadnezzar is one, one of the ones I was thinking of, right? First, God utilizes Nebuchadnezzar, right, and the, and the Babylonians to bring this judgment upon his people. But then Nebuchadnezzar goes down, and the, the Babylonian Empire goes down because it's Cyrus, C-Y-R-U-S, the leader of Persia, who does away with Babylon. And in and, and 539, 538, God's people are given permission to come back and rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And the thing we want to notice about this is that God is behind the, the human history that we see. God is ultimately in control of nations, of leaders, of peoples, utilizing them to accomplish his purposes. And his purposes, of course, are salvation and eternal life for all who would believe. So sometimes I think we may have a tendency when we see world events around us to think that all is lost or, you know, is, is God snoozing or something. Not the case. We see this throughout the scriptures. Um, he didn't bring them all. Well, we go back. I was going to say David, but we can go back to Saul, right, before David. Then you've got David, remember, and his, his sin with Bathsheba, God left him on the throne but brought him down with sending Nathan to him, you know, and you, you are the man. You are the one. Carol? Carol? Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, the recognition of Christ by so many. In fact, um, in two weeks, uh, the, the gospel lesson is about Jesus not having any, um, any acceptance in his own hometown area. 
So yeah, the, the recognition was just not there. Yeah, and uh, the epistle lesson for today uh, and the sermon for today here at St. Paul's talks about Christ, who though he was in the very form of God, did not count equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself, took on human flesh, so and obedient on a death. So that's exactly, exactly correct. Um, anyway, so again, a comfort for us as God's people that he is ultimately in control. Uh, he's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Should we understand that spiritually or just physically, you think? He has fed, he's filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. Spiritually, right? Yeah. Yeah, we want to, I think sometimes we're tempted just to, just to look at it from a physical standpoint, right? He fed the 5,000 with five loaves of bread and two fish and, you know, and so on. But spiritually speaking, he has fed until, the, you know, basically Jesus talking about himself as the bread of life, right? And never hungering again, never thirsting again. Um, Notice 54, he has helped his servants Israel in remembrance. And there's that word mercy again, right? And, of course, Jesus is going to be the servant now that Israel never could be. Um, As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And it's important here what, what Mary is doing is lining this up now all the way back to Abraham all the way back to Abraham, so that seeing the connection with what is happening now with John the Baptist and with Christ, all the way back to the promise given to Abraham. So if you could hold your finger here for a moment and go back, let me show you two of the, two of the spots. If we go back to Genesis, and let's take a look at Genesis 12. Genesis 12. And we'll just go 1 through 3. Okay, Genesis 12, 1 through 3. And this is the call, God's call, of Abram. Name's not Abraham yet, but it's Abram. Now the Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and your kindred and your father's house to the land that I will show you, and I will make of you a great nation, and I will bless you and make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. I will bless those who bless you, and him who dishonors you I will curse. And in you, all the families of the earth shall be blessed. Now let me stop and ask you this. How is it that through Abraham, all the families of the earth are going to be blessed? Yeah, through Christ. Christ, the ultimate descendant coming from the line of Abraham is going to be the way that through the line of Abraham, all the world is going to be blessed. While you're in Genesis, I hope you you didn't turn away yet. Let's look at 22, verse 18. So Genesis 22. And I want to show the similarity with the verse here for today. Okay, everybody there, 22, 18. And in your offspring, or your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed because you have obeyed my voice. Your offspring, or through your seed, shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. Who is the ultimate seed again of Abraham who is going to bless all the nations? Jesus Christ, right. And we won't look at it, but you can... uh, at home, write it down or write it down. In Galatians 3, verses 16 through 19, this is the exact line that Paul takes. That God did not say seeds, plural, but singular, seed. All the nations of the earth will be blessed. And Paul, in Galatians 3, 16 through 19, points to Jesus as the ultimate fulfillment of that promise to Abraham and really to all. Okay, so uh, she says here uh, to his to Abraham's offspring forever. So Mary was well aware, obviously, of this promise and and the fulfillment to come. And verse fifty six, and Mary remained with her about three months with Elizabeth, about three months, 
and returned home. Now remember, when Gabriel, the angel, came to Mary to announce, did the Annunciation, how far along was Elizabeth at that point? Six months. How long does Mary stay here? Three months. So what are we very close to? The birth of John the Baptist, yeah. And we, we aren't told here that she stayed until the birth or, or through the duration of the birth even, but had to be very close here. And so stayed with her cousin Elizabeth. And of course, Jesus is staying uh, there as well in, in her. And that word for stay again means to remain or abide. So uh, again, she is going back. We'd love to know how, how much time did she, you know, after she left was, was there before John the Baptist uh, was actually born. And we don't have that, okay? All right, so that finishes up the Magnificat. And again, Magnificat because the first word in the Latin text is that Latin word for magnify. And as she begins, my soul magnifies the Lord. That's why it's typically called the Magnificat. Okay? Any questions or comments before we move on? We're going to get to the birth of John the Baptist here in just a second, but let me stop for a moment. Any comments, questions? Yes. Yeah. 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 Right, 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 yeah. The question was about how does a Catholic church see Mary's role, and we talked a little bit about this uh, last week, the uh, increasing uh, uh, profile. Yeah, how did they not see? Yeah. You know, we see Mary in, in chapters 1 and 2 as nothing but a humble servant of humble estate also, low estate. Remember, we talked about that last week as well. We do not see her exalting herself at all. And that is, that is why we, as I said last week, we have a very reverent respect for Mary. She is unique among all women who have ever lived because of the fact that she was actually carrying God. I read where our Lutheran confessions refer to her twice as the mother of God. But on the other hand, we don't let that go to the point where we are somehow venerating Mary or, or worshiping Mary or praying to Mary or, you know, anything else that would be, um, uh, you know, lifting her up higher than, than she should be in, in our, she, she is just a, remember she said, my savior also in talking about, about herself. So all the other doctrines that we talked about last week, we just do not see those in scripture at all. We would love to say, well, show us. And it's usually been that a pope has made a pronouncement at some point in, in time, and it now becomes doctrine. Okay? All right, let's go on. The birth of John the Baptist now, starting at verse 57. And I'll, I'll read through the whole thing, and then we'll go back and kind of go through it. Now the time came for Elizabeth to give birth, and she bore a son. And her neighbors and relatives heard that the Lord had shown great mercy. There's that word mercy again to her. And they rejoiced with her. And on the eighth day, they came to circumcise the child. And they would have called him Zechariah after his father. But his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. And they said to her, none of your relatives is called by this name. And they made signs to his father inquiring what he wanted him to be called. And he asked for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John. And they all wondered. And immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed, and he spoke, blessing God. And fear came on all their neighbors, and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. And all who heard them laid them up in their hearts, saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was with him. Okay? All right. So let's go back now and kind of take this uh, kind of verse by verse and pick out some things here as we go. First of all, notice how Luke is very matter-of-fact in verse 57 about God's fulfillment of what had been promised through the angel Gabriel. Uh, the time came for her Elizabeth to give birth. She bore a son. And so again, it's very matter-of-fact. If you look back, we'll take a look at that prophecy in, in Luke 1, verses 13 and 14, a little earlier on, 13 and 14. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, 
for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you shall call his name John. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. That's exactly what we've got happening, right, in verse 57 and 58. The son is born, just like he was promised, and you've got people rejoicing, right? All the, the, the uh, neighbors and relatives are all rejoicing with them, especially since she had been barren and had been advanced in years. This was a great time of rejoicing. But there's even more cause, of course, for rejoicing than that. This is this, this miracle baby that is, is granted to them. Now, um, on the eighth day, they came and circumcised the child. It's going to be interesting. Um, they, would, they, would call him, they wanted to call him Zechariah after his father, but his mother answered, no, he shall be called John. The they here is probably the friends and the relatives, right, who are saying, what are you going to call him, Zechariah? And it, there was a custom back at that time to name a son either after the father or after the grandfather. And so when she comes up with John, they're kind of stymied. And where, where'd you get that from, you know? It's like, uh, you know, today we pick out names and, uh, you know, you, people are expecting a child. What's, what's one of the questions that they get asked? Have you selected name or names yet, right? And so the naming was a special thing. From this verse, we learn that a child got his or her, uh, got his name, I should say, at the circumcision, they were named. And we'll look at uh, back in Genesis in just a moment and see where this comes from. In our baptismal service, we have sort of a carryover of that custom of naming the child at circumcision, but now it's at baptism. What's one of the, what's one of the questions that the pastor always asks? In fact, it is the last question before the pastor takes the child to baptize the child. How is this child to be named? That's not because we can't read and, and don't know, you know what, what the name of the child is supposed to be, uh, but it is following that, that custom. In fact, you may have heard terminology such as your baptismal name, right? And I don't know, I, in my lifetime, that practice had gone by the wayside, at least where I grew up. There was, uh, you were named in the hospital <laughs> uh, most all the time. And, but, so I don't know where that custom may have fallen off, whether there was a time in history when children did not get their first name until they actually came to the baptismal font. Do any of you know the answer to that? Was it, any, anybody ever have that custom when they were growing up? Rahima, you did. Okay. Ah. Uh huh. Yeah. Uh-huh. Ah. Very good. Very good. And so that is that that is that custom and it goes back to the actually the circumcision custom uh back then. Um I'll tell you what, we're going to probably if if you want to look we want to look at it now just for time purposes, but the the commanding to circumcise uh, by God is in Genesis 17, verses 9 through 18, where God gives the command about circumcision on the eighth day. And notice here that Luke is very matter-of-fact that they are going by the book here, that Zechariah and Elizabeth are following God's commands to the T. And he, of course, as a priest, remember, uh, and she as a uh, daughter of, of uh, Levi also. They're, they're very devout and righteous people, and they are doing things according to the book. Um, now, obviously, Zechariah had communicated with Elizabeth, right? For she now knows that he's supposed to be called John, right? So somehow, whether he used the same uh, writing pad that he's going to use here in just a little bit, but somehow he got word to her that this child is to be named John, okay? Um, John means the Lord has shown favor, and that certainly would be the case here, obviously, with this, with this pregnancy and this, this birth. 
Um, Zechariah means uh, Yahweh or God has remembered, which again would be a, an appropriate name uh, as well. And it's interesting, you know, here we're going to have the circumcision and naming of John and Zechariah is going to burst into song. In Luke 2, we're going to have the circumcision and naming of Jesus and Simeon is going to break into song. So there's a pattern here that is going back and forth. Um, so verse 61, they say to her, you know, none of your relatives are called by this name. And notice what did they do in verse 62? They're not believing Elizabeth, right? What do they do? The friends and relatives. Now careful here. Did they ask him? Did they verbally ask him? What did they do? Made signs. In fact, the Greek is sort of like nodding, but we don't think it, they were nodding. They, they made gestures. What, there's speculation here. What might that mean? Why didn't they just ask him? How's he supposed to be named? What might, in addition to not being able to speak, was he unable to hear? We don't know. Yeah, okay, okay. A uh, comment was made that sometimes when you can't speak, people assume you can't hear, okay? So that's a possibility. Uh, but it's just curious, and we don't have an answer in the text. We, we don't, we're not told. Uh, but we know he cannot speak. Paul? Yes, uh, the, the comment was a situation here in the naming where God has taken the control or seized the dominion, I think you... See, yes. Remember, God is the one, first of all, through Gabriel, who names the child. The parents aren't, aren't given the name here. They're going to be faithful and pass along that name of, of John. And God, um, it, remember, it was the unbelief of Zechariah that resulted in his being unable to speak. And just, I mentioned that I think a couple weeks ago, just think about that. Every time Zechariah would have the impulse to speak, but wouldn't be able to, what is he reminded of? His lack of faith, his lack of, of trusting in God. That's, you know, and hopefully he also um, experienced the mercy and forgiveness that comes with that. But every time he wanted to speak and couldn't, would be reminded of his, his lack of faith, right? So, a couple things here. They don't, they don't, notice how the, the woman's point of view here is, is uh, questioned. You know, that can't be right. And, and then emotion to him. And he, obviously here, faithfully uh, gives the same answer. Uh, he asked them, verse 63, for a writing tablet and wrote, his name is John, and they all wondered. I read one author, you know, thinking, what is a writing tablet? What is that? They talk about these hollowed out, it'd be a rectangle of wood hollowed out, and they would have wax on the inside of this hollowed out piece of wood, and they would use a stick or a stylus to write into the wax. It would, it would make an indentation in the wax. And there was speculation that that's what he used at that point to communicate to the people that, yes, even though, even though it's what she said, she's right. And in the Greek, it's even more emphatic. The first word that he speaks is not his name. It's John is the first name he speaks. John is the name of him, is literally the way it is in, in the Greek. So it's emphatic that it is John is his name. Again, exactly what he had been told to do by Gabriel. And in verse 64, immediately his mouth was opened and his tongue loosed and he spoke. And notice what's the first thing he does. Blessing God. And we're going to read in just a moment his uh, benedictus or his song of praise. And notice there, now here comes fear again. Fear came on all their neighbors and all these things were talked about through all the hill country of Judea. Now, remember that hill country is where uh, Zechariah was from. We don't have a city. We don't have a town named. But there's this ridge of hills, is probably a good way to describe it, that runs down the middle of uh, Judea and uh, even includes uh, Jerusalem and Nazareth and some of the other uh, areas there. 
And we don't know exactly where he lived. Remember, he was a priest, so he would have had to come to the temple twice a year. There were 24 different groups of priests, and he would, they each had a, a week-long service. So uh, he would be there twice a year in Jerusalem serving in the temple. So we think he didn't live real far because he would be making that trip. So the, hill, the whole hill country is talking about this. And uh, 66, all who heard them laid up in their hearts saying, What then will this child be? For the hand of the Lord was upon him. Uh, when you think about it, the reactions of these friends are kind of interesting. They go, first of all, from rejoicing when the child is born, right? They're all happy and they're rejoicing together, just as Gabriel had predicted. Then they go to confusion when they hear the name that's supposed to be given, right? They're, they're confused and don't understand. And now there's a, a description of actual fear that they have. Again, being confused, what, what is this child going to be? With all these things that have taken place, with, first of all, the pregnancy itself, which is enough in and of itself, I suppose, that, you know, but then with this whole situation with Zechariah's mouth being, uh, had been silent, now it's, it's freed up. And what is this child going to be? They, they've got, you know, he's, he's the talk of the whole area here. And what has transpired, what has happened, is the talk of the whole area. People are just wondering, speculating, you know, this is going to be something unusual. And uh, notice there in verse 66, the people heard these things. They laid them up in their hearts. Earlier, when Mary heard everything that was going to happen, what did she do? Pondered these things in her heart, laid these things up in her heart as well. Okay? Um, so... And, and, and finally, um, Luke summarizes that the hand of the Lord uh, was with him. Okay. Um, now, let's uh, go, let's see, let's go to, you know, the, the whole idea of God being with us and the presence of God with us. The hand of the Lord. Now, does, does God have a hand, a right or left hand? No. God is spirit and those who worship him worship in spirit and truth. When is the only time... God ever had a hand? In Jesus, of course, yeah. He, he takes on, uh, he's 100% God, 100% man. We talked about that at the incarnation. And so this is just a way of saying, and there's a big word for it, it's called an anthropomorphism. It's when you give God a human quality. Just like God does not have an arm, right? The arm of the Lord. Well, no, it's just a way of saying it so we can understand it. And the hand of the Lord is with this boy, is with John the Baptist. And, and uh, it's a way of saying that God's presence is with him. It almost implies a protecting sort of function that God is doing here for him as well. Now let me ask you this. Where is, is God, first of all, is God, is, is God with us today? Obviously. Um, and it is that presence of God, right, and and all that it means for us, that is so comforting to us, isn't it? Uh, think of Psalm 23, for example. Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. And remember Jesus saying to his disciples, uh, who are going to have to experience some incredible things going forward, and all but one end up dying, uh, a martyr. He says to them, remember that, lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age, and I will never leave you or forsake you. It is that comforting presence of God who is with us. He is with us every moment, every day. I always try to remember to remind people before they're going to have surgery of this blessing that we have, that although they have great doctors whom God has blessed with, incredible knowledge and skills and gifts to, to help uh, heal people. Nonetheless, your God goes into that operating room with you, and you are not alone. And it is that presence, it is that comfort. I don't know if, any, uh, if a lot of you have had surgery, but there is that time when you're on the gurney, and the anesthesiologist comes to inject the, the uh, stuff that's going to knock you out, 
and you realize this is all in God's hands. And you just, what else are you going to do, right? (laughs) It's not in your control. And there is that comforting presence that God is always there. And not just there, but there for us, right? In in the same way his his comforting hand uh, was there with John the Baptist. So, again, um, it may seem like kind of a throwaway line, but it's it's one of the best blessings we have uh, as God's people. All right? All right, we're going to get into the Benedictus now, but first let me stop. Any comments or questions about the birth of John the Baptist now? Okay, uh, I didn't realize that. The NIV has the word fear translated awe. Yeah, okay, that's interesting. Yeah, it actually probably is a little better. They're, They're just awestruck by what has happened here, and they don't know what it means. They're trying to figure out, what does this mean? What's going to happen with this child? And, of course, we know, but we have the hindsight of, of looking back. All right, let's go on, then, to the actual uh, prophecy of, of Zechariah here. And it is called the Benedictus. And this ought to be fairly sound pretty familiar to our ears because it is in our service of matins. So here at St. Paul's on the second Sunday of the month, we generally do the service, the order of matins. And so we would sing this, it's set to music. Um, If those of you that maybe at home have an LSB, it's pages 226 and 227, if you want to look it up there. We don't have hymnals here, but I think we're pretty familiar with it here. Let me go through and read the whole thing, and then we'll go back and take it apart again. So verse 67, and his father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying... Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us that we, being delivered from the hand of our enemies, might serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people in the forgiveness of their sins. Because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high, to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death, to guide our feet into the way of peace. Okay? So this, again, is a hymn of praise, just like Mary's Magnificat, and it's also a hymn of prophecy as well. Let's start with verse 68, that verb... Again, the same word we saw last week, blessed be the Lord God of Israel. And remember, we talked about this Greek word. It is one that can be used, as it is here, for praising God, but it's also a word that can be used to transfer the blessing of God onto people. Blessed be you. It is the same, it is related to the word that we have for benediction or good word. So blessed here is being used to praise God, but it also can be used to bless people, bring the blessing of God to people. And at the end of the church service, when the pastor uh, gives the benediction, we believe that is not just saying, well, uh, this is sort of the end of the service now, time for you to go. But may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious upon you. May the Lord look upon you with favor and give you peace. We believe that those words from God are actually enacting what they are describing. And and it's different in that way. And this is the same sort of thing here. When they say, blessed be someone, they actually convey that very thought. It's it's not... uh, uh, Just like the invocation, when we call in the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, that isn't one, two, three, let's go. That is actually calling in uh, the the triune God and worshiping the triune God. So um, it it literally is a good word and is uh, 
used here in that sense of, of praising God. Uh, now, um, the word for God has visited his people. You see that word visited there? It means uh, someone who comes in order to help you. And in this case, God is coming to help his people. If we keep our hand here, our finger here, let's turn back to Genesis again and take a look at Genesis chapter 50. Genesis 50, the very end of the book. And we'll start at verse 24. Let's start at verse 24. And Joseph, uh, so Genesis 50, verse 24. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am about to die, but God will visit you. There's that word, visit you, and bring you up out of this land to the land that he swore to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Then Joseph made the sons of Israel swear, saying, God will surely visit you, and you shall carry up my bones from here. So it's the same word that is used there. It is, in this case, God coming to help his people. And that's exactly what Zechariah is saying here. God has come in and through this pregnancy, and of course probably referring to Mary's as well, to visit, to come to help his people. Now let me ask you this, where do we see God coming to help his people today? Where does that happen? Where, where do we see God coming to help his people today? Sacraments, yeah. His means of grace, right? Word and sacrament, God coming to help his people today. Now, again, it is that God is, we say, never going to leave us or forsake us. He's with us always. But there are certain places he has promised to be for us and promised to bless us. And again, it's his means of grace, the word and the sacrament. God is coming to help his people, right? And so, ironically, we sing the Benedictus in the service of Matins where we don't typically have the Lord's Supper. <laughs> so, we talk about him coming to visit, visit his people, uh, to redeem, help his people, but we only have the word there. We don't have, we don't have the Lord's Supper there. So that's one of, those, one of those ironies, I guess. We have the gathering, correct. Wherever two or three are gathered in my name, there am I in the midst of them, right? So he, he, he does that yet today. Um, let's see. He has redeemed his people. What does it mean to redeem something? Buy it back, to purchase it with a price. And of course, in Christ, he is coming to redeem his people, and the price of that redemption will not be currency, will not be dollars or any type of currency, gold or silver, but will be the holy, precious blood of Christ, his life given on the cross, right? That's the, that's the payment, the redemption that is going to come. And 69, God has raised up a horn of salvation. Now that is a strange sounding term to us, right? A horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. And that horn here is a word that denotes strength, either of God or of man. Strong salvation he has raised up. Uh, I'll show you a place where it's used that way. If you would just turn to Psalm 18, the very beginning of Psalm 18, we see that word used in the very same way. Psalm 18, we'll start just at verse 1, verses 1 and 2. So Psalm 18. I love you, O Lord, my strength. The Lord is my rock and my fortress and my deliverer, my God, my rock in whom I take refuge, my shield, and notice here, the horn of my salvation, my stronghold. So the horn of salvation is the strength and power of God's salvation, as used here. And notice the connection there, back to David. This is keeping the line all the way through. And verse 70 continues that, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old. So Zechariah here is, again, drawing our attention to the fact that this is not something new here that God is doing, but it goes all the way back to the prophets of old. Um, 
uh, let's see, three weeks ago, I guess it was now that I preached, um, I mentioned that there are some 300 or more Old Testament prophecies that point ahead to Christ in the Old Testament. And Zechariah here is noting that as he spoke from the prophets of old, this is all coming to fruition now. This is all happening. It's been God's plan all the way along. Yes? Oh, <laughs> okay, the question was, does this have any connection to the horn of plenty that we see at Thanksgiving? It is, the word is literally used of an animal's horn, and we usually think of the, what, what do the animals use their horns for usually? For strength and fighting, right? And uh, so it usually has, I'm not sure there's any connection to like the harvest uh, horn of plenty. Yeah, you could use, they used a ram's horn for uh, signaling in battle. They used a ram's horn to um, uh, call, uh, say when the Sabbath began and when it ended, for example, as well. But here, it, typically it's used, in, at least in the Old Testament, uh, connection with strength. Now let me ask you this. So if Jesus ultimately is the horn of salvation for us and for all people, did it appear to people that he was a strong and mighty deliverer, God's horn of salvation? A lot of you are shaking your heads no. He healed the sick. Okay, we've got to say that. He, he, he brought three people from death to life that we know of. But what, what about Jesus would make, would make people think he was weak instead of this mighty horn of salvation? What would be some things that would make, make them conclude he was weak? Kathy? Okay, silence at his trial, right? Pilate, even, don't you have anything to say for yourself? He's, and, of course, that was predicted, right? right? Like a lamb before his shearers is done, so he opened not his mouth. Another prophecy fulfilled. There's only about 299 more. The fact that he died, right? Yes. He dies. Which, which looks to the world like defeat, right? And, 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 and that he was, he was over, overwhelmed, overcome. Is there another? Yes. Buried. Yep. Oh, oh, weary. I'm sorry, wearied. Yes, tired, fatigued. Yes. Yes, the people he hung out with, the tax collectors, the sinners, in fact. Yeah, and, and the fact that they even criticized him for that. Okay. Meek. Yes, another prophecy fulfilled, right? So what we're saying is what looked to the world to be weakness, what looked to the world to be defeat, is actually the strength and power of God. That he would come and suffer and die himself for the sins of the world. That is the power of God. I've always said that the glory of God is no more clearly evident and visible for us to see than on the cross. That this God would go to that extent for his people and used by the love of his people. So what looked to the world to be defeat and weakness, in fact, was the strength of God and his, his salvation on behalf of all of us. Carolyn? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Well, thank you. Yeah, the, the comment was that, and, and I'll just say this, pastors should be humble, right? And the fact that the comment was made about pastors being humble and in comparison to some others, and um, absolutely we should be, and we pray that God keeps us that way. <laughs> You know, uh, I didn't mention it back when we were down, back when we were talking about bringing, bringing down the high and the mighty, but isn't it the case that sometimes the most gracious thing that God can do for someone who is high and mighty and uh, uh, very impressed with themselves uh, is bring them down? Because unfortunately, when you are high and mighty and conceited and think you've got the world uh, by the tail, sometimes it's pretty easy to forget about God and your need for God and how dependent you are upon God. 
And we don't probably think of it that way, but perhaps it's the most merciful thing that God can do at times in people's lives. And we see that happen. I'm not, and we, we, again, we, everything is in, is in God's control, but we, he, we know he wants all to be saved. All right, um, let's, uh, I'm going to go a little bit quicker here. Um, she goes on, uh, verse 72, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, and again, going all the way back to Abraham, and the oath that he swore to our father Abraham. This is the only place in the book of Luke that the word oath is used, this word oath is used, and it is equated with a covenant. Now, what's a covenant? Promise, yeah, promise like an agreement. And the thing that's so different about God's covenant is, usually you might have a covenant, let's say, between two kings, right? And they come together and they make promises to each other. We still do this today. We have peace treaties and things like that. The thing that's unique in God's covenant is that we don't have anything to bring to the table. God is the one that brings everything. And he makes that covenant or that agreement. And when, again, when God makes a covenant, it is as good as done. It just hasn't happened yet, but it's as good as done. Mm-hmm. Yes. Yes. David, the David covenant and the oath, the oath part is more toward the David side and the covenant is more the Abraham side, but they all come together here and they are equated. And so it's God again, um, remembering his holy covenant. And the great thing about when you look through the scriptures, Whenever God remembers something, he, it's not just that he thinks about it, he acts. It moves him to act. And it's, it's seemingly always acting in favor for his people. Uh, he remembers the covenant that he made here, and he acts. He sends Christ. He sends John the Baptist. Um, that we should be delivered from our enemies who might serve him without fear. The ultimate enemies, of course, are we are going to be delivered from... Uh, by Christ himself. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Serve him without fear. This time we're serving him not being afraid, again, that he's going to condemn us or uh, do anything to harm us um, and, and so on. We're going to have to end here. I, next week, uh, I won't be doing this class, but um, let's see who is. I think it might be Pastor Wade. I'm not sure. Yeah, I think it's going to be Pastor Wade. He'll have to pick up. Notice how in verse 76, it changes. And now it is addressed to the child, addressed to John the Baptist and what he is going to do. Namely, go before the Lord, prepare his ways, give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins, and so on. So you, you get a shifting here now from God and everything he has done to what God is going to do through this child now. And remember, this is his father, his biological father, prophesying this about what his son is going to be used by God to accomplish. So kind of an interesting perspective for a father on Father's Day, right? (laughs) All right, let's close then with benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be and abide with you all. Amen.